We return this morning to Matthew chapter 11. We pick up at verse 7 and consider down through verse 15 for the first time of a couple of weeks of study. Matthew 11, 7 to 15. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitude concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? Verse 7. Verse 8. What went ye out for to see? Verse 9. What went ye out for to see? There's the outline. Back to verse 7. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yes, yea, I say unto you. And more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesies, prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Father, give us ears to hear the truth spoken by the lips of our Lord concerning John the baptizer. But more than that, concerning the kingdom of God. And more than that, concerning the unique opportunity that exists by the grace of God for each and every one of us gathered here this morning. We do rejoice in our opportunity and we ask for liberty in both sharing and receiving the word of God this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Seven times in the New Testament, John, the miraculous son of an old man, Zacharias, and his old wife, Elizabeth, is identified by the descriptive noun, Baptist. John was never a part of a group called Baptist. John was a baptizer. He was not the beginning of Baptist churches like this one. But he is connected to believers of 
Christ, like us, in the minds of men because of the mode of baptism embraced. And more significantly, John the baptizer is connected to the eternal plan of the all-wise God of heaven and earth. Now, not everybody's name is in the Bible. Mine is. But, of course, the Timothy in the Bible is not this Timothy. And if your name were John, it would not be you, John, when you read it in the Bible. But one of the amazing things that Jesus has to say in this section is that John, the baptizer, was designated in Old Testament Scripture. Specifically him, that guy. And hundreds of years before he was ever born. So I just tell you, this guy, John, is really somebody, and, uh, and uh, we are going to spend some time here uh, soaking, as it were, in this uh, marvelous testimonial text concerning John the baptizer. Now, previously, in the study of Matthew's gospel account, we considered the life and ministry of John the baptizer as presented back in Matthew chapter 3. We had a lot to say about him then. In weeks ahead, in this study of Matthew, we will once again visit uh, the life of John the baptizer when we get to Matthew chapter 14. As best I can tell, that'll be sometime in the summer. But last week, we opened this 11th chapter of Matthew, the imprisoned John the baptizer, is recorded to have sent two of his disciples to inquire of Jesus the Christ, about God's judgment on the wicked. John's understandable perplexity is met with the Lord's directive to John to remember the messianic prophecy of Isaiah and to connect that to the Lord's continuation of work among the blind, the lame, the leprous, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. Verse 5. John was to encourage himself in prison by the word of God written and not concern himself with being able to see the perfect fulfillment of God's promise and plan at that time. And I just simply note that your posture and my posture before God in this very day is exactly the same. We are to take our comfort from the word of God written and not concern ourselves with the calendar nor the perfect fulfillment of God's promises and plan as the details unfold over days ahead. John was able to find rest and peace in the word of God, which cannot return void or fail. For all the blessed things John the baptizer knew of God and his eternal plan, there were yet many things concealed to God's faithful, great human servant. John was put in a position to keep trusting God 
and to keep looking to the revealed written word of God. And again, as we. As the disciples of John departed with the words of Jesus to John, Jesus turns to the crowd gathered around him, verse 7, and he brought public honor and attention to the life and ministry of John the baptizer. Today we're beginning a two-week study of the things that Jesus had to say of John. A few of you may recall that about, uh, oh, uh, three to five years ago, we dedicated a whole summer of Wednesday night study to God's man, John. We gleaned and placed everything uh, together, said of John, uh, in the four gospel accounts and demonstrated the profound connection of this man, John the Baptizer, uh, with the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament prophets. Uh, but for today, we're sticking to the record of this text and noting this morning that repetition of the Lord's question to the crowd concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? Verse 7, but what went ye out for to see? Verse 8, and but what went ye out for to see? Uh, verse 9. The Lord's repetitious question invokes from the crowd John's best and brightest characteristics as a true man of God. It had been, has been my privilege to speak at several men's retreats and conferences across the nation over my lifetime, and I've often turned to John's testimony here from the lips of the Lord Jesus to specify the characteristics of a faithful and spiritual man. Such a man, indeed, spiritually, is attractive. The question of Jesus all three times, in essence, is, what drew you? What caused you to come out to John? What drew you to John? And uh, in that, you can perceive uh, devotionally something of the principles of spiritual attractiveness. The repetitious question of the Lord honors John and points to that principle of spiritual attraction. What exactly was it? that drew people to John the baptizer. Today we connect the Lord's threefold questions. What went ye out for to see to the expected answers? No, no, yes. Three times the question, what did you go out to see? No. What did you go out to see? No. What did you go out to see? Yep. So those are the questions and the answers that form the essence of our study this morning. The first thing that we draw to your attention from the first question in verse 7, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? The answer expected is no. And that allows us to say that John the baptizer was a man with a spiritual backbone. 
John the baptizer was a man with a spiritual backbone. Jesus asked the people if they were drawn out of their towns, drawn out of their villages, drawn out of their houses to the dry and desert conditions of the wilderness in the Jordan Valley to see John because he was like a reed at the spell, driven at the spell of the wind. A reed is not a tree. If you go out in the front yard of the church property where there is that big and rather stately tree and you blow on it, neither you nor the tree nor anybody watching you would say you had any effect on the tree whatsoever. But if you pluck a reed from the bush or a, a stalk uh, from uh, 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 a, a wheat plant. It doesn't take much. And if you don't like that direction, and if you don't like that direction, And if you don't like that direction, and most of the preachers that I know are, and if the people don't like that direction, and if the people don't like that direction, Jesus said, is that why you left your, your comfortable house? Is that why you left your, your heavy blanket? Is that why you left behind your, your fountain of water and went out into the dry desert for to hear John the baptizer? Doesn't take too much imagination to know the answer to the question. The answer is no. Johnny B. was not like that. John was a man of godly conviction and living purpose according to the will of God. The scripture tells us that he was filled of God's own spirit from his old mother's womb. He was raised by his priestly old parents to love and trust God. He was raised being told of his unique role in the eternal plan of Yahweh in connection to Messiah. He lived a simple life of interaction with God apart from the many distractions of city life. 
He was a man with a message from God to the Israeli nation. He preached serious messages of the necessity of repentance and declared the kingdom opportunity of Israel was at hand. Fearing God, John the Baptizer had no fear of political and religious leaders and repeatedly confronted them in their specific sins. He is one of only three named men in Scripture that lived their entire life under a Nazarite vow. Samson was one, the Israeli judge of great strength. Samuel, another, the dedicated prophet and commissioner of Israeli kings. And John the baptizer, the official advance man in the eternal plan of God to prepare Israel for the Messiah. All things, logically, in John's mind, before beheading, all things, in my mind, looking back at it, with just a narrow focus upon JB, says he failed. Spiritual backbone, strong conviction, lived out day after day after day is not the usual even among the named people of God. John was God-centered, not self-centered. John was driven by his heavenly task, never his own agenda. I recall to your attention the word we've read three times at least already, seven, eight, nine, and that's the word see. What did you go out to see? Two different words are used in the three words recorded. The first one catches your attention when you see it in the Greek. Theaomai is the Greek word for see in verse seven. And from that word, we get the English word theater. What did you go out to witness, to see in John, as if John were in a uh, theater in the, in the wilderness? Uh, the other two words have to do with, uh, uh, with perception. What did you go out to perceive? What did you go out to learn and to know? But all three words speak of the fact that people were drawn to go and see and hear John because he was a no-nonsense talker of truth that lived as he preached. One of the interesting elements of my boyhood years that I don't believe I've ever told you <laughs> till now was the uh, uh, family obsession, my family's obsession, 
with a doctor, a medical doctor, who served our family, who had the most wonderful bedside manner you could ever desire in a medical man. And he was held in the highest regard uh, in my family until a medical decision that he made concerning my sister proved the fact that he had a better bedside manner than was truly a doctor. And that was the cutoff line between that good doc and my family. Listen, when the chips are down, when you're in trouble, when you're in distress, you don't want somebody who just knows how to hold your hand. You need somebody who will tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. And John was just such a man. He called upon the repentant to bear witness to their kingdom heart desire in the waters of the Jordan River in public baptism. Spiritual backbone, spiritual conviction lived out is not the usual among the people of God, but men possessing such draw and repel others. People either love them or hate them. But the question of Jesus to the crowd, as first rendered, verse 7, tells us that John was no compromising nor self-promoting man. He was God's man, and everybody knew that. He was God's man, and he lived a life of bold distinction. I cannot get my mind around the potential relief, the potential revival, the potential restoration in America if preachers were to be more like John. But generally speaking, they are not. Did the crowd gather to see and hear a man that would tell them what they wanted to hear? Never. John told them what they needed to hear and left the rest to God. Here is a man of spiritual backbone. Oh, God, give us pastors of spiritual backbone. Give us deacons of spiritual backbone. Oh, God, in this dinky little church, give us people of spiritual backbone because nothing else matches the fit of the age. Number two, John the baptizer was a man of the earthly badlands, not South Dakota 
But that is where I visited that gave me the word for my outline. There is a play on words, verse 7 and into verse 8. The Greek word for wilderness is eremos. And the word for wind is animos. And so you have wind in eremos, two words that almost sound the same. And when you read it in the Greek, it kind of has a rhythmic, almost a poetic feel to it. Those words remind us that John lived a life of self-denial and non-existent physical comforts. Further, the word out, verse 7, out, verse 8, out, verse 9, three times reminds us that John didn't go in to the city and villages but indeed waited for the people to come out to him in the rough and rugged environment of the wilderness, which you know already was a dangerous environment in that Judean wilderness. The smell of outdoors was all over John. John was solitary and a single-minded man. Yet John was not, as he is often portrayed, an ascetic. John was not an ascetic. The word asceticism means that a person believes that God is somehow impressed when a person chooses to live without earthly comforts in afflictive conditions. Let me assure you that no coat you give away, no car you give away, nothing that you shed from your own life will in any way ever impress the Almighty. And John never had the thought that by a limited wardrobe and a very narrow, yuck-filled diet, that uh, he was somehow impressing God. Therefore, we cannot assign to J.B. the idea of asceticism. John did not choose to suffer. He did not choose to afflict himself. He simply chose to do the will of God no matter what. Jesus continued to probe the crowd by asking about John's clothing, verse 8. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. I'm glad the word raiment is there. I'll tell you why in a moment. But a man in soft raiment, behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. The second question again evokes in us the response, no. Did the Israeli masses flock to the wilderness to see a man dressed in the clothes of the self-indulgent, dressed in the clothes of popular decorum of kings and rulers? Uh, did they go out there because... He was really a stud muffin. 
And the answer is no. Even John's clothing spoke against the systematic and societal pressures to be approved in the eyes of this old sinful world. I want to pause here. I want to meddle a minute. I'm not preaching now. I'm just meddling. I'll get back to preaching in a second. Do clothing, do clothes, say something about the wearer? Yep. They always have. They always will. Back in the generation past, there was a little bit too much fussiness over the right clothes at worship. Today, not enough. I'm just saying, clothes do say something about a person. They say something about a worshiper. And you and I have a good example here in John the Baptizer. John's clothing spoke against the systematic and societal pressures to be approved in the eyes of the old sinful world. The word soft, used by Jesus regarding raiment, speaks of its color and comfort. It looked good. It felt good. It looked good. It felt good. I almost brought my navy blue sweatshirt, my favorite piece of clothing, hands down, Nothing else compares in all the world. I almost brought my favorite uh, uh, clothing item, my navy blue sweatshirt, and, uh, and I took it off my list of illustrations because I knew uh, that uh, the yogurt on the, on the belly side uh, would have to be washed, and I didn't think it would be washed uh, and ready for this Sunday morning. I wanted to at least bring my favorite article of clothing uh, to the service, washed, and then wouldn't you know it, after I gave up on it, Sherry handed it, handed it to me this morning to take back upstairs and put in the closet. And so I want you to know, just as soon as I go home this afternoon, I will be putting on my favorite navy blue sweatshirt. I love that thing. Usually the word soft in the Bible, when referring to clothing, speaks of color in the case of my sweatshirt, blue, and in the case of comfort, it is absolutely the most comfortable thing you have ever felt in your entire life. But when the word soft is used metaphorically, apart from the word raiment, it speaks of the feminine. We would say in our day, the gay, the LBTQ thing. Isn't that interesting? John, in this case, soft refers to his raiment, but the word that Jesus used is a powerful word. We've heard previously in Matthew of John's rugged, camel hair clothing, and leather belt. 
garments appropriate to John's missional life in a rough place. I'm sure I told you the story, but back in the day when Sherry and I uh, first left the state of Michigan as adults and went out to Iowa, uh, the Iowans, bless their pea-picking hearts, were just a little more fussy about dress than we Michiganders were even back in the day of that legal Baptist day of ours. And, uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, I packed my clothes to speak at camp. And uh, after I got there, realized that I did not have appropriate dress for the evening chapel. That was when I had Sherry pull a, a sheet off the bed that they gave us at that camp. And she made me a Joseph coat so that I could wear the same necktie every night and take it off and then put on the Joseph coat to preach. It helps when you uh, marry a pastor's wife to marry one that can sew. Believe me, that's very helpful. But John's garments were appropriate to his missional life in a rough place. John did not curry favor before the eyes of men. He never chased the worldly fad. He never chased a worldly trend of fickle men. He was devoted to the glory of God in salvation and judgment. And so we can easily answer the questions one and two. No, no. Question number one, no. Question number two, no. But question number three, yes. J.B. was a man befit of his heavenly calling, verse 9. But what went ye out for to see a prophet? Yes, or yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Jesus declared that John was more than a prophet. The prophetic office in Israel began and was defined under Moses. It continued among the nation of Israel without a lack of a man in that office until the Babylonian captivity. The last Old Testament prophet of the Old Testament era was Malachi. Then for 400 years, there was no heaven-sent prophet in Israel. Then came John. He was the last and greatest of the Hebrew prophets. John had a faithful and dedicated following of disciples. Jesus said he was more than a prophet. For that, in the big part, we're going to need to wait until next week. But one of the awesome things that we will hear when we get to it is the exegesis of the Lord Jesus Christ himself concerning the Old Testament book of Malachi, chapter 3. 
Nobody needs to wonder what the interpretation of Malachi 3 is because Jesus interpreted the text for us all and uh, explains exactly that John was the fulfillment of Malachi's messenger prophecy. But for this morning, I simply remind you that John lived such a faithful life before God and before men that there were those who thought that John may well be the promised Messiah himself. He lived so close to the Old Testament depiction of the man of God's own choosing, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that there were a number of folk that believed that uh, John was Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. Luke 3.15 tells us that. Of course, John was quick to say, it's not me. It's not me. He wasn't the Christ, but he practically lived up to that title. And therefore, we can say that while John the baptizer was never on earth a Christian, we can certainly say that John the baptizer lived up to the modern title, Christian. For he was enough like Christ so that to invoke from others the thought of Christ. All those with faith in Christ ought to live God-centered lives without compromise of truth. All those with faith in Christ ought not be concerned greatly with the world's favor. I do want to pause before I conclude to thank you for not dressing like John today. We are not in the wilderness. But please, please, please consider the value of living a life like John, a life of honor and glory to God without compromise nor worldly concern. I used to always believe that the age or stage in the church most tempted to worldly concern uh, were the teenagers because everybody's wearing those kind of shoes and those kind of britches and that kind of hat. And I always used to think the teenagers were the worst. But then in this generation, after hanging out with senior citizens, I can tell you that senior citizens are ever bit as bad as any teenagers when it comes to quoting their friends as Bible. Seniors quote each other like the other senior is a prophet of God. And it's just not true. Now listen, true knowledge and embrace of Christ for confidence and uncompromising Christians is the great need of our day. 
The Lord's name is wonderful. And by faith in that name, in Christ, you can be a person of stability in the days of earthly life. You can be a purposeful person in the days of earthly life. You can be a fruitful person in the days of earthly life as was John. Father, the little section we've read ends with, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Give us ears to hear and to respond to thy honor and glory. For we do pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.